0: Here, the knowledge of salvation originally through the Jews not through the Americans not through the Arabs, the Africans the Chinese or the Europeans or any other group, came through the Jewish people. Jesus he lived as a Jew and the Christian faith was born out of the Jewish religion and here we see a Gentile asking a Jew to come help him get to God. This is important because even in Christianity there have been those who have tried to get rid of Israel who have been anti-Semitic.
1: This is Cross Reference Radio with our pastor and teacher, Rick Gaston. Rick is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Mechanicsville. Pastor Rick is currently teaching through the Book of Acts. Please stay with us after today's message to hear more information about Cross Reference Radio, specifically how you can get a free copy of this teaching Pastor Rick's study is called Learning to Unlearn today, and he'll be teaching in Acts chapter 10.
0: When Judaistic Christians went up to Antioch, and they tried to get the Christians to follow you know, Judaism, dietary laws, circumcision, stuff, and stuff like that, Paul, Paul went ballistic, him and Barnabas. And they said, well, fine, we'll take it to Jerusalem. And they go to Jerusalem there, and they have the council, and Peter stands up in defense, of Christians, of, of, of being converted to Christianity without having to become Jewish. And it's not anti-Semitic at all. Acts chapter 15, verse 10, this is what Peter says, and he's pointing to how the rabbis injected these laws on the people that God never put on them. We have to watch doing the same thing as Christians, because there are Christians that will come and tell you things that the Bible does not tell you to do. And they'll speak it as though it's a commandment of God. You're sinning if you don't do this, you don't do that. You don't wear, you know, wooden skirts or something. <laughs> so Peter says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's saying the rabbis, they just loaded us up with rules that who could follow them. And so when he says, you know it's unlawful for me to come in your house, it's like, uh, it's not like it is, this fact. It was never prohibited in the first place. And, but he still has to overcome this. He's been raised this way as a Jewish man. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. May God show us too. So God overruled these teachings that were wrong. And it, it it took miracles, it took dreams and visions to, to get this rolling. Now we have the scripture. Now it's codified for us. We don't need a vision to understand so much of our Christian faith. Verse 29. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? Well, fair enough. Why am I here? And uh Peter says that it is because. God prepared him. God, I'm here because of God. I'm not here because I felt sorry for you. I'm not here because I always wanted to see Caesarea. I'm here because God sent me. And I fear, you know, many times Christians go in, you know, on mission trips because they just want to see the place. I'm going on a mission trip to Naples. Or I'm going on a mission trip to you, Maui. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, fine, if God's sending you there, but if it's, like, exciting, uh, maybe maybe you shouldn't be going. Well, I don't want to judge, because I know I've hit 20 or 30 people. Uh, at some point, somewhere, you're going to get it, but tell God, not me. Uh, I said, But you said it, I'm going to tell you. Uh, moving back to this, Peter came without objection once he knew it was the Lord. Once he had that green light from God, he was off with his assignment. Verse 30. So Cornelius said, Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. I have to pause there, because it's a little confusing, verse thirty. It reads as though he's still fasting, and I don't believe that is the meaning. He was he didn't give a time. He said, I was fasting to whatever hour it was until the ninth hour. That that is how he is saying it. So so Cornelius, verse 30 said four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So he's recounting to Peter the vision that he had that started in verse 1 of this chapter. Verse 31, he continues. And he said, Cornelius, this is what the man in the bright clothing said to him, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. I have thought about this prayer so many times, this this moment, from verse 1 and here again. Many times in my Christian walk, when is God going to answer my prayer? When am I going to have that Cornelius moment? Rick, I've heard your prayer. No. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. I want to hear it granted. It has been granted unto you. But I will add, there are many prayers that I have not made that God has answered. If I can say it that way. In other words, he has given me things that I have not even asked for. And they're big things. Where would I be without them? He's brought people into this ministry that I never asked for. And I'll let you know who you are after service. (laughs) I mean, as blessings. Just blessings. Uh, So it it causes one to meditate on these things to give yourself to them, to ponder them, to try to get them to influence how you're going to serve the Lord better. I don't know about you, I'm always trying to serve better. I like to think all Christians are trying to do better. We meet with much resistance. We have to learn how to keep going nonetheless. I'm not getting better at this. Well, what is your alternative? Quit or keep going? Well, we have a single word for that. It's called persevere. He said, but it hurts so much. We have a word for that too. Endure. Endure means take the pain. Take it. Sometimes you just don't have a choice. I'm just being real with you because in all of this reality is God, the one who took the pain for us, not only on the cross, but in other ways. You can bet his heart broke over many things that he had to deal with in his life on earth. Well, coming back to this, verse 31, he, uh, he stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms remembered in the sight of God. Peter talking about abstaining because fasting is meant to weaken the flesh. There are types of fasting. Cornelius may have skipped two meals that day and only just had a sundown meal, something like that. Or maybe it's a day where you just abstain from some other uh, pleasure that you, you, you that is harmless in itself, not sinful, but to fast is to abstain. Uh, it, the flesh will resist this, of course. Peter wrote to the believers, he said, beloved, I beg you as... Sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And yes, Lord, it does. It's nice to have it in print. It's nice to take out the guessing. Well, moving back to this, Cornelius was in a struggle to find truth about God. It's not natural. We don't just, you know, figure out God on our own. It's a spiritual event. And there's nothing natural when it comes to learning about God. It is all spiritual. It comes from his throne. John chapter 4, God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, which is why Cornelius got corrected. John chapter 6, this, you know, those who believe in transubstantiation, you say, what is that? I don't know. I can pronounce it. No, I know what it is. To believe that when they have communion, it's they're actually taking in the blood and the flesh, which is cannibalistic. It is not endorsed in scripture. When Jesus made this, it was metaphor. He tells us that. In the same section, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Otherwise, he would say, hey, take a bite. Go ahead. It's crazy how anybody could come up with some great minds, men like Martin Luther, you know, they, would, they learn these things and you go, huh? But I'm sure there's something about you that others might say that about. And me too. Anyway, lessons every believer must learn as we unlearn the natural that resists the spiritual. These are lessons. We have if nothing else, if you don't agree with much of what a pastor says, hopefully at the very least, it will cause you to think a little more, a little reach a little deeper. He's, I don't think uh, pastors come up and say, "You must agree with me." Well, I think that. But no, I don't. <laughs> it is funny. You want people to agree with you, of course. Uh, Who likes to be questioned when you're in a position of authority? Nobody. Everybody wants people to say, aye, aye, and be off and running. But that's not a reality. Uh, The reality is that when we come and sit before the word, we hope that we will be stirred to consider things that we otherwise would have passed by. We're going to come to that in a moment. Verse 32, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. Verse 33, so I sent to you immediately. You have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear the things God commanded by you. There it is. We are assembled to hear you preach what God has told you. Whether you know it or not, when you come to church, you've come to hear something from God. It could be a repeat of, uh, you know, an echo of something that you've heard somewhere else or whatever. You come to hear from God. When a pastor prepares a sermon, he's trying to hear from God for himself that he can share with you. And thus Paul says, that which I first received, I have given to you. That's the process that we, we submit to. By consent, it is a good process. Uh, the pastor, he, he must know. Uh, even the people may not know these things, but his his role is to preach what he's been told. Ecclesiastes 5, now this is what I said, we're coming to it. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. There's a lot to think about in that. If uh, Again, Ecclesiastes 5.1 should be mandatory reading for churchgoers. At some point in your life, you have to sign, yes, I read, (laughs) you know, you you enter into any contractual agreement, they have you sign 900 pages. Uh, Well, there are some Christian verses. Take not an accusation against the elder, an elder on the strength of one witness. How many Christians listen to one person criticize a pastor and say, boy, I didn't know that about him, and I'm out of there? It happens quite a bit. Anyway, um, all of this is happening because of God. Uh, All of this is God's doing. The assembly in the house and the preacher there. The witnesses on both sides. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. First words out of his mouth. He goes into the Gentile house. The Jews don't like me coming into your house. I would not have done this had God not worked on me. But I'm here now. Then he comes in and he sees all these people ready for him. And it's got to be like, wow, this is a, 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 a church. His sermon begins with an Old Testament teaching in the light of New Testament fulfillment. You don't just take an Old Testament verse apart from the New Testament. The New Testament stamps its approval on it. think that I've come to destroy I've not come to destroy the Lord's law, but to fulfill it. Deuteronomy. 10, verse 17, is what Peter is using as his text. There are several places in the Old Testament that it says this, but I'm going to Deuteronomy. Well, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. And so Peter is saying, in truth, I, I know that God shows no partiality. Probably for the first time in his life, he fully understands this verse, its connection to what he is doing and its application. He now understands, before it may have been limited, well, God likes the rich people just as much as the poor people. Now it's Gentiles as much as Jews. It's expanded. And so he says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, verse 35, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted in him. Well, the Pharisees would be just having a conniption if they heard him say this. No one has favored status with God because of their ethnicity. No one has favored status with God because of their gender or their wealth or their nation or their education. Or how much hair they have. You should point that out. It's important to me. So here Peter speaks to all humanity. God is not interested in the things that you might think is important unless he says so. And he is eliminating a lot of stuff here when he says, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness, that one is accepted. Not some credentials. Not some country that you're from. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became me on the cross. He became you on the cross. He became the sinner on the cross. And that's what this verse is saying. He made him who knew no sin, he was sinless, no one else has this status, that he might become Uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's why Paul could say, there is now therefore no condemnation upon you. But how do you look at other people? Maybe you just look down on them because they're not doing as well as you in school or in life. Or maybe they just uh, don't have the upbringing you have. Maybe you just don't care for them. Whatever it is, you better check that snarkiness. It's not acceptable to Christ If you claim to belong to Christ, then try to belong to Christ. And don't think that you can have these time-out sessions where you can treat people with contempt because uh, you're a snob. Uh, I'm not saying that you're a snob, but I am saying we're all susceptible to this kind of behavior, and it is not acceptable. Israel gave the world the scriptures and the prophets. God did it through them. Romans 3, verse 2, to them were committed the oracles or the utterances of God. That's where our scripture starts, the Jewish people. And within those utterances, those oracles, we learn the only way to God, the only way to salvation, and the true purpose that belongs to us. Had God chosen a different ethnic group than the Jewish people, they would have given the world the scriptures and they would be the ones that would be alienated by the rest of the world because it is spiritual. When Satan found out, you mean this people has been singled out to bring the oracles in the, in the early stages? Satan has heightened up his attacks on them. And not only for that, but because of the prophecies that revolve around Israel, making the Jewish people as a nation. God's time clock for eternity. Well, Satan hates that. And so he tries to destroy the Jewish people so that he can prove God is wrong because he is spiritually insane. You cannot be sane, dwell in heaven, see God on the throne, and then think you can overthrow him. Something's got to be wrong with you. Something that can't be fixed. That's how deep it goes. Well, God did choose Jacob, and it is the Jewish people who have brought us the scriptures initially. Uh, here it says, the word which God sent to his children, the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, and every knee will bow before him. All means all, every part of it. The problem is, is the unbeliever doesn't believe the scripture. He doesn't have that authority for them. Well, that's where we have to help them. The biggest proof that the the Christian Bible is trustworthy in the face of someone who rejects the authority of the Bible, to me at least, is that how do you account the fact that you are a sinner and you know it? You know you do wrong things. You know you have wrong thoughts. Not because you have been taught this, because you don't like this happening to you and you do it to others and you have enough conscience to know that's not right. That is the beginning. When you come to the scripture, it is going to deal with that part of you. You can fuss about discrepancies and other things. All you want it's still going to single you out and you have no defense against it. And there's no other writing on earth like this. So, yeah, those who reject the word of God will be rejected ultimately because they have no excuse. As Paul says, you are inexcusable, oh man, whoever you are, if you are pulling these things off before God. And you try to overthink it and hide behind analysis and this and that. And you still can't get away from the guilt. Because you are a sinner. And God has pronounced it. And he has put eternity in your heart. And you can't get away from these things. Revelation nineteen sixteen, speaking of this lordship. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are going to be there to see that. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, that would be the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He must be God. He is. Every bit of it. Jesus is God the Son. And when the language shifts, it does, and God did this through Christ, does not eliminate Christ from the Godhead. It includes him. Well, no matter how much I fail, he remains Lord because he says so. Because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He does not say, I will never leave you nor forsake you, unless you mess up. Quite the opposite. Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. You got to love that. I get goosebumps thinking about the mercy of God on sinners. How much it, if I can apply some of, you know, anthropomorphically reverse it, my feelings into God's heart, how much it must hurt him to see people thumb their nose at him, to mock and hate his son. And most of the time, they don't even know what they're mocking and hating. Verse 37. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Peter knows that they've heard about these things. He knows that Cornelius has had a connection to the Jewish people, and he knows that the story of Christ has circulated in uh, the Jewish community, claiming that Christ, uh, at least this much, the claims of Christ to be Messiah and the miracles that he performed. Yet gaps remain. Peter is saying, I know you know these things, but you don't know enough. And that's why God has sent me here. John chapter 4, again, Jesus in Samaria at the, with, the well, at, with the woman at the well. <laughs> this, is, this is so the Lord. He just, right between the eyes. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. That's right, because they have the utterance, the oracles, It was first given to them. They were entrusted with this. The church has assumed this role. The nation of Israel continues to exist and flourish, and it will continue to exist and flourish until Christ returns. Well, uh, it has not always, of course. We know there's this long gap, which is a miracle by itself. No other people in the history of humankind has known to be knocked out of their homeland, retain their identity, their religion, their ethnicity, and then be brought back to their land after 2,000 years. When that has happened to other people, we have much of it documented, the Old Testament is loaded with it. Nebuchadnezzar would go in, for example, Pharaoh would go in, for example, the Seleucids, all those would go take people out of their country and they would be assimilated into their conqueror's land. For instance, you won't meet a Philistine. You won't meet an Edomite. You will not meet a Moabite. They have been conquered and assimilated, taken out of their land and absorbed, and they're gone. Well, they tried that with Israel and didn't work. The only one. It is a miracle. Uh, I don't know how you can be a Christian and side against Israel. Uh, you, You just have to be crazy. Well, coming back to this. When Jesus said, you worship what you do not know, we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. Instantly, he wiped out every other religion on earth with that statement. And the world hates us for it. So they can say whatever they want to say. But we can say, ah, we disagree. <laughs> they don't like that. Well, they're going to have to learn to live with it. Well, here, the knowledge of salvation originally through the Jews, not through the Americans Not through the Arabs, the Africans, the Chinese, or the Europeans, or any other group. came through the Jewish people. Jesus, he lived as a Jew, and the Christian faith was born out of the Jewish religion. And here we see a Gentile asking a Jew to come help him get to God. This is important because even in Christianity, there have been those who have tried to get rid of Israel, who have been anti-Semitic.